It couldn't last forever. He had known this time would come. Time for something different. Woody felt it as he listened to the playback, his long, supple fingers tightening around his lore oboe. There was nothing wrong with the music, but it was just more of the same that he had composed and played for the last few years, sprightly, flowing patterns of melody interweaving with the other instruments in a lattice-work fugue, but with a tone that cut the soul like a scalpel. Finally, they had all listened. They came to concerts, bought his records, made him more money than he thought he would ever have. And now that he was as successful as he ever hoped to be, a glitch in his soul told him that he had to change. People had caught up with him, and that meant he had been running too slowly. Time for something different. Woody Robinson had grown up in the sixties, and his first songs were of those years. He still remembered the lessons the decade had taught him, of the need to speak in your own voice, sing your own song. And despite the transformation of that ideal into pop songs and slogans, he had held to those tenets, and as the years passed, things came around. For over twenty years he had played something different, whether it was called world music, avant-garde, or new age, a term he loathed. And the audience had caught on, their ears had become attuned, so it was time to rattle their ears again. Yet he didn't want to go any farther over the edge. He loved improvising, experimenting, exploring, but he loved melody, too. He loved to make his instruments sing, and he would not trade in his songs for noise. But then what? For God's sake, what? Ron Dewey sat on a bare space on the recording console. His head bobbed in rhythm, stopped when his solos in the Kawhi K-3 kicked in. Then he listened without pleasure concentrating only on imperfections, responding with grudging satisfaction when, as usual, there were none, or with fury when there were. Jim Colombo sat on the floor next to Ron, his hands flashing as they did on his percussion set, playing ghost drums, his eyes closed. Michael Lester, the final member of Woody's group, sat quietly in a chair, his arms folded, his face calm, his acoustic bass which he treated like a lover in the corner next to him. The music was fine. The playing was brilliant. Then why did it all sound so empty, so hollow? It wasn't the engineer's fault. Woody had used Drake Oppencott for his two previous albums, and the recording and mix had been flawless. He held back a sigh as he watched Drake fumble in the deep pocket of his khaki work shirt for matches. Drake was the only sound man he knew who smoked in his studio. Though purists claimed that the smoke would degrade the equipment over a period of time, he continued, though now he was smoking a pipe rather than cigarettes. Better for the lungs, worse for the equipment. Woody listened to the take and watched as Drake picked up his pipe. A straight-stemmed briar, darkened from smoking, reached behind the console and took a tin that looked vaguely familiar to Woody, opened it quietly, reached in, took fingers full of flake, and tamped them carefully into the bowl. Then he closed the tin, set it on the console so that a startled Woody could see its familiar label of McBaron's Virginia Blend Number 1, and lit a match. Woody smelled the aroma of the burning tobacco immediately, and at the same time heard himself on the tape, improvising a four-note riff that repeated several times, three minor descending eighth notes, the fourth note a minor third below. At once... He knew the derivation of the riff, something he had not realized during the recording. They were the first notes of the doors, People Are Strange. 
and the notes from the song he had not heard for over twenty years, the aroma from the tobacco he had not smoked for even longer, turned back those years, raised the curtain of memory on an evening in 1969, his friends around him, Tracy sitting next to him on the worn gray sofa, the sounds of dark and glorious menace coming from the speakers, the warmth of her against his arm. And now the thought of looking back, a thought he had so long refused to consider, became a desire, a demand, an irresistible impulse, and he closed his eyes, his own music faded away, and he went back, remembered the fall of 1969, and he was twenty-one and a senior, hand in love.